Welcome to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth Podcast with your host, Chris Durow. Years ago, Chris was a firefighter and a paramedic and witnessed many people not getting another tomorrow, and it shaped who he is now as a financial strategist. Chris doesn't just help people plan for a secure tomorrow, he helps them plan for a better today. Chris lives and works in Burlington, Ontario, and runs an advisory practice named Three Hats Financial. Let's get to it. Welcome back to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth with Chris Duro of Three Hats Financial. I'm Patrice Sikora. This episode, Chris is talking with Lisa Taylor, president of the Challenge Factory and the Center for Career Innovation. Lisa has an MBA in strategic management and public administration and is an in-demand speaker on the changing workplace. She's written management books for small businesses, nonprofits, and charities, and is the author of The Talent Revolution, Longevity and the Future of Work. Lisa also sits on several boards of directors and is a member of the Canadian Council for Career Development. Chris, Lisa, COVID-19 has changed life in many ways for many people, and that includes a midlife crisis and second-guessing career choices. Is it ever too late to change? Thanks, Lisa, for coming on the show, and I really appreciate uh, you coming on this. I'm looking forward to going through this, and we'll get to Patrice's question, obviously, in a second. I'm excited for this today because I, on a regular basis, usually have clients and friends asking about changing careers in their 40s and 50s, but I've definitely noticed uh, this increase quite a bit with the whole COVID thing, having many people saying, this has made me reset. I don't really want to go back to the job or as a lot of people reference it, the hamster wheel I was on before. I don't want to be commuting as much. And what can I do? So a lot of people I speak to have these questions and concerns, but then they feel stuck because they are in their say forties or fifties. And there's a heck of a lot more commitments as we all know you have at that life stage than in your early twenties. So then a lot of them feel like they can't make that move and they're just going to stick it out in their career or job that they have now. And I've heard people saying, well, I'm just going to stay in this job. It's got benefits. It's got a pension and I'll just ride it out. But if you're in your forties and fifties, that's, you could potentially have still 15 to 20 years of work ahead of you. And that's, I feel quite a long time to be stuck in something that you don't want to do. So Lisa, can you tell us why you started the challenge factory and give us a bit of a background and your story? Sure, I'd uh, I'd be happy to. I'm gonna I'm gonna start just hitting head on that there's a, a theme to the question that you are asking around is it too late to change and why do people get stuck that you'll hear both in my story as well as in the work that ends up happening at Challenge Factory uh, and hopefully that that theme can kind of shift the way we think about things and that has to do with how we think about age and time so that idea that it's too late or that there isn't a cost to just waiting out 20 or 25 years is a really interesting dynamic about how we think about time and how we value our time. And I think that one of the reasons why right at this moment, these conversations are cropping up more and more and you're hearing it with your clients is because we've had this reset where we actually have had to have a very intimate relationship with time minute by minute, day by day in our homes, 
month by month as the pandemic has, uh, has rolled into its sixth and almost seventh month, this whole question of what are we doing with our time and what could we be doing with our time has really come to the forefront. So I just want to call attention to the fact that the, the core theme here is actually less about skills and jobs and capabilities and more about how do we value our time. So I started Challenge Factory nine years ago. It, uh, it was 10 years in the making before that. And it was because earlier in my career, I was managing a fairly large team. I had more than 120 employees that worked directly under me. The average age on my team was 47 and the average tenure with the company was 18 years. So it was an experienced mid-career team, solid mid-career team, and they were incredible. We did incredible work. Our clients loved what they loved, what we delivered for them. We were in the technology sector. What I was finding as a relatively young manager, I was at least 10 to 15 years younger than most of the people that were on the team that I was managing. And what I was finding is when it would come time to have annual career conversations or performance management conversations where we would start to talk about, so what comes next? The majority of my people would say, look, I've had this conversation with so many managers over the course of so many years. I'm fine doing what I'm doing now. I don't love it. I mean, it's, it's great. And I like the people that I work with. And I know that I do good work, but I can do it in my sleep. It's easy. I'm a little bored, to be honest with you, but it pays my bills and I have to get through my mortgage or I have to get my youngest through post-secondary or whatever it was that was financially tied. Let me just get through that and then I'll figure out what I want to do next. And I would say to them, okay, let's assume that day is today. Let's assume that today your youngest is through post-secondary, you've paid off your mortgage, you're now free to go and do whatever it is that you want to do. You've put in your time in this job waiting for this to all happen. What would you do? And nobody knew. And not only did they not know what they wanted to do, they didn't know how to figure out what they wanted to do next. And I found that so fascinating. We spend so much time with students, especially in university and in post-secondary, asking them, what do you want to do next? Where's your degree leading? Why are you studying that? Where are you going? It's almost like, and then as soon as we graduate, we forget that we're in charge of our own career paths. And we forget that there's ways that we can continue to navigate all the way through our entire life course. It seems like the focus is on you have to choose something when you are way too young to actually make permanent life choices. Very few of us still work in exactly the same sector we did when we first graduated. But we forget for ourselves that this is a lifelong process of continually evolving and changing. And we can continue to do it over our entire life course. So that brings us back to that theme of time. I continue to do research. As I said, the, the original idea was almost 10 years in the making. I tracked demographics. I looked at where life stage actually comes to play a part of this and really focused on what is it about that midlife stage, late 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into 70s as life spans get longer? And how can we continue to make meaningful contribution for our own well-being, but also because Canada needs its full population at full productivity? And it doesn't make sense that we count ourselves out or that we're counted out of the workforce 
at age 55, at 60 or at 65, that's too young to be starting to consider ourselves as non-productive members of society. So maybe I'll pause there, but hopefully that gives us a little bit to dig into and maybe a little insight to what your clients are experiencing. Yeah, no, that's great. And I know we had a conversation obviously previously before this, and I'm just impressed with your background on this and the whole story on why you created Challenge Factory to see that need. And it's it's just been incredible the last few months just seeing how much more this has been popping up. Like just another example of this was I'm just part of a dad's Facebook group. And one of the members, there's over 3,000 members, and one of the members asked this question. This is just a couple of days ago. And I just sat there seeing the comments, and it was just unbelievable. There was over 300 comments on just people in the same boat or giving advice on making the move. But I just couldn't believe how many dads in this group at that in that ages of 40 to 50s were all thinking the same thing. And they just, that outlet just allowed them to be able to talk with each other saying, is it crazy that I'm thinking of even doing this? I don't know. I've got, I've got kids. My wife's probably going to kill me if I try to change careers. How, like, how can I even think of going back to school or doing something? And there's a lot of stress around that because many of my listeners know that many years ago, I made the jump from emergency services to financial planning and that. And it was stressful for me because the fire department is, was a, is a phenomenal job and it played with my head because you have many people that would kill themselves to try and even get that job. And here I am just walking away from it. And I was walking away from security. I was w walking away from a schedule that was ingrained into my, my head for the last 15 years. There's colleagues and friends and sure people can say, well, you can still speak get together and hang out with them once you leave, but it's, it's not the same. And of course you there, I knew that there was going to be unfortunately people that I would never see again, just due to logistics and everything else. So it was, it was stressful going through that because you are giving up what you know and going towards the unknown, which can be a little bit scary by far the best decision I've ever made for myself and my family. But how do people overcome some of those fears because they're, they're going to have them. And as well, Lisa, would you agree that they might almost feel like a bit of an outcast because they're kind of leaving that norm? And how would they deal with that? It's a really good question. And I think that a lot of times people think when they're considering making a career change that it's the practical steps that they need to get to. And the reason they're not getting to it is because they're just lazy or they just can't get around to it. And it's those are the kinds of things like I need to write my resume or update my LinkedIn profile. And that just makes everyone feel like, well, and so they just don't get around to it. And that's why they think they're not making the change. But actually, the reality is a lot more grounded in some of the things that you were just talking about. And it's, it's because what we do and the work that we do oftentimes serves as a proxy for the way that we think about our identity. So when you were in emergency services, you would define yourself that way. You'd put on that uniform every day. You would introduce yourself socially as being a member of the service. That was your, your, your posse. It was who you hung out with. It was who you were. It was where you know ate, slept, lived. And that's true in any job, especially in Canada. So in Canada, we use our titles as the way to introduce ourselves to each other more than almost any other country in the world. 
because we don't have another proxy. So if I were to meet you at a cocktail party and we were just, you know, meeting in non-COVID times and, you know, exchanging uh, business cards or having a glass of wine over the cheese table, you would say to me, you know, hi, I'm Chris and, uh, and who are you and, and what do you do or where do you work? And because that's the first question that we ask of each other, we answer that question over and over and over again, almost like a mantra. Hi, I'm Lisa, and I'm the president of Challenge Factory. Hi, I'm Joe, and I work at XYZ Company, or I'm an accountant. And by coupling our names, who we are, and what we do together hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the course of the years that we're in our working life, we're associating who we are with what we do all the time. And so the real fear factor when it comes down to changing careers, especially mid-career, it could be that there's financial considerations. That is certainly possible, but you would know that there are ways for you to do things in a stepwise fashion so that you don't put your financials at risk. There are ways to be able to mitigate the fears around practically, how do I move from here to there? How do I get the financials to be right? How do I get my spouse on side? The real underlying fear that keeps people from taking the steps to even initiate those more practical conversations is who am I if I no longer can introduce myself the way that I've been introducing myself? And if I've been a vice president at XYZ Financial Institution, and now I'm going to introduce myself as Joe Smith, small business owner, or change sectors how is my peer group going to react to that? Like, is that going to seem crazy? Are they going to think that I've lost my mind because I'm on this one path and now I've chosen something else? And what's the impression that I'm going to leave for the brand that I've spent a lifetime building, the employment brand, the career brand that I've built, that people know me in a certain way? So the concern is often much more about who am I going to be as opposed to how will I actually make this change? And without acknowledging that there's a significant identity component to changing careers, it becomes really hard just to take those practical steps because everything feels more complicated than it should be. No, I agree with that. Okay, so we just told listeners how to somewhat get over that fear because like myself, when I was going through it, they definitely are going to have some fears for sure. That's completely normal. Okay, so we've addressed that. Now, the listeners are saying, or if someone's listening to this is, okay, this is me. What do I do now? I know that I don't want to stay in this career or this job. What is the first step that I need to do to start going down this path? Often people think that the first step is that resume or starting to tell your network that you're looking for something new. And what I want to convey is that that should not be your first step. The first step is actually for people just to take a pause and to spend a little bit of time really thinking through what are the criteria that your next job needs to meet so that it actually is the sweet spot job that you're looking for. There's no point leaving the job you're currently in to land in a job that has all of the same things that you don't like about the current job, just in a different setting. So there are really good ways. And if you, if you do start going out to your network or update your resume, the only story you have to tell is the story you've been living. You've decided you don't want to continue to live that story anymore. 
So why would you use that as your marketing to try to attract something different? That's not going to work. So the first step needs to be that you take a step back and you really think through what is it that you're looking for? And there's four different areas that when we're working with clients, we have them go through making long lists of things so that we can start to see what's the pattern. So the four areas to think about is what do you need? Really practically, how much money do you need to make? How long a commute do you want to let make? What size team do you want to work on? Do you need to be in charge? Do you need to never manage people again? Do you need fewer meetings, more meetings, more collaboration, less collaboration? What do you need in order to really love the work that you're doing and be good at it? The second area that you need to explore is what are you talented in? What are you uniquely good at that other people can learn to be good at, but it comes naturally to you? And sometimes people have a hard time figuring out what their unique talents are. If you ask friends and family that know you well, what is it that they see you doing that they wish they could do as well as you can? They'll tell you what your talents are. Other people recognize it in you sometimes easier than we recognize it in ourselves. So first, what do you need? Second, what are you talented in? Third, what do you care about or what are you passionate about? So when you're looking out in the world and not necessarily work-related, but just in general in life, what are the things that you care about that connect you, that give you energy that make you enthusiastic to go and spend time doing different activities. If it's sports, great. If it's something in your family, great. Put it all down as a list because it all gives us hints to what are the the themes that have to be present for you to really engage with the work that you're going to do. So those are the first three domains, needs, talents, passions. The last one looks externally and it says, Where are there problems in my community, in my country, in the world, in my industry, in my sector? Where is there something that I see as an issue that I want my work to help solve? So another way to say that is the world would be a better place if only. And then how would you finish that sentence for your block, your community, your city, your sector, your industry? Long lists of things where you see that there is a need that you want to be part of solving. And we call that area impact. And it's also tied to market. What it does by focusing on where there's external problems that you want to be a part of solving is it helps to give a clue to where you should be applying and going to look at where there may be work for you that's not just a hobby, but that there's actually a problem that someone is willing to pay someone else to solve. So that helps keep the practicality of this exercise very high. So when you finish doing an analysis of what do you need, what are you good at, what do you care about, and where's the market, you're going to start to notice that there's places that these things overlap. The cool thing about the overlaps is that when you take a look at where those four domains end up leading you when you look at them in total, it's, it takes you someplace that makes perfect sense for you. And it may not be something that's obvious to people, to other people, when they look at your own career. So... For example, Chris, your move from being a part of the fire service to financial planning absolutely satisfies needs for flexibility, control of your own schedule, working directly with people in service. It picks up on talents that you have, on being able to see patterns and be able to engage people in different ways. It ties to something that you care about, which is helping people for their future. And there is a market for financial planners. 
there's a way that this makes a logical story that I'm just making up hypothetically, not knowing you deeply, <laughs> but there's a way that this, this specific career makes a, a logical story and is a logical progression for you that other people may not be able to see why did you choose this? And the truth of the matter is it doesn't matter. They don't need to see it. What you need to know is that this is something that's possible and fits your sweet spot. And then you can start to make a plan for how you would make the move. Yeah. And, and I've had, I've had clients that are scared because they, they don't even know where to go in regards to, do I, I know I want to do something different, but I'm not sure what, and you just address that Lisa. And that was going to be my second question was do majority of people that you assist, do they stay somewhat within the same skill set, or do they go completely different? Because obviously the path of least resistance is to stay somewhat within your skill set. And when I'm speaking to clients, that's where they kind of struggle because they're very nervous to give up the skill set that they have, or almost feel like a bit of a failure in the sense that, well, holy, I went to school for all this stuff and I'm just going to pack that in now and go try something else. But they're not happy with what they're doing. And I tell people, you went to school and got that career when you were in your early 20s. Now you're in your mid 40s, late 40s. Are you the same person that you were in your early 20s? I would think that none of us are. But it's difficult as well, too, because a lot of them will put up these barriers saying, well, I know, Chris, you did that and you made the career jump and that's great, but I can't do it because of this, this and this, which I find is just somewhat the excuses because it makes them feel more comfortable to think that they can't do it. Do you find most people will change their skill set completely or do they somewhat stay comfortable with staying within what they already have education and knowledge in? It's a real mix. And I think the approach of looking at what's the criteria, the career sweet spot criteria that you're going to use in order to help you find the next job can really help with that decision of, and do I need to make a wholesale change? Or sometimes when you go through that evaluation of what do you need, what are you good at, what do you care about, and where's the market, what you find is that there's something that's just not hitting the mark in the work that you're currently doing. But going through the exercise helps you to exactly define what it was. Maybe there's some needs that have changed. Maybe when you first started the career, the work was okay. You know, you're talented in it and you care about the work still. There's still a market for it. But now you have three kids and you're looking after aging parents and your house needs a little bit of attention and there's something else that's pulling on you. So you have different needs. So if there's an element of the sweet spot model or the criteria that comes out, it may be that it helps you to negotiate a different condition within the same career path that you have, or to find a different job within the same career path that better suits the needs that you have right now, or that better meets the criteria you have right now. Often people are worried about meeting with a career counselor or meeting with a career coach or going through career exploration because they think that it's the first step on a path where they have to change their whole life. And actually what it is, is it's just the first step on a path to reconnect who are you, what work is meaningful to you, where is the labor market right now, and where is your best opportunity? And if that best opportunity happens to fall 
in the same career path that you're currently in, just with some modifications, you'll just end up in a stronger negotiating point. It doesn't mean you have to do a wholesale change. And our clients do everything from realizing they actually can fall back in love with their same job all the way through to, you know, giving their notice and doing some wildly entrepreneurial, very different type of career. Um, We've seen it manifest itself in all different ways. Yeah. And that's something that's really important um, that you just mentioned there, Lisa, is, is you gave the four tips, which was fantastic, but letting people know that like, you don't have to sit here and just Google how to make a career change at this age and figure this all out by yourself, because then that may just delay or give people other excuses to not to put their first step forward into changing their career. So career, I don't know exactly what those resources are available. I know when I was in high school, you had guidance counselors and things like that. And I have been out of that game for obviously a long time, but you're saying that there is career coaches and resources that people can use to help them or assist them with all of this, to help them figure out which route do I go? What would I have to do to go to this career? There are, and uh, they're right across the country from coast to coast to coast. They're all the way through the United States. They're around the world. And in fact, I'll just make one small comment about the difference between the way that we think about this in North America and the way that other parts of the world think about lifelong career guidance. You mentioned guidance counselors before. In North America, we approach career guidance as something that is appropriate for students. So they exist in schools, in high schools, as well as in um, post-secondary institutions. We'll have career centers. And then the rest of the time, the only time the adult population tends to intersect with career professionals is when there's an interruption in their career. When you lose a job, if you become injured on the job, this is when there's an intervention and you may be put in touch with services of someone who can help you with career or employment services. The rest of the world does not approach career management in this way. They see career management as a lifelong process of how individuals intersect with the labor market. And the labor market changes all the time. In conversations about the future of work, we're always talking about how the jobs that exist now didn't exist 10 years ago, What's going to happen next? What are the skills that are going to keep us from being obsolete? We have all of these conversations that reinforce our own personal connection to the world of work is constantly shifting and changing. It doesn't freeze because we've left school. And so other places have lifelong connections. Scotland, any any citizen can get lifelong services where on an annual basis, they review their connection to the labor market. They update their skills portfolio. They look at where are they headed. This is not an unusual thing for people to take a look at at every point in their life alongside the way that they look at their finances. So if we look at financial planning, I'm going to go right into your territory. If we look at financial planning, there's professionals that we work with that help us value our money over time and help us make decisions on when's the right time to take risks with our money And when do we need it to be safe? And where should we be placing those bets? Professionals that watch the market that help us know how to do those things. When we look at our career, it's exactly the same thing. There are professionals that help us value not our money over time, but our time over time. So where should we be placing our time? When's the right time to be investing in new education? How do we evolve our own skills so that we stay lockstep with 
not the financial market, but the labor market, so that we stay relevant and at the leading edge of what is happening in our own industry or at the leading edge of what's coming next. That doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen by Googling. That happens by working with professionals that are tied into jobs, careers, identity, life stage theory, work, and the labor market. And the title for those people in Canada is career development professional or career development practitioner. They're certified, they're trained, they're educated. They're not your uncle saying, this is the way it worked in my career. Here's how you should go and do your career. We tend to get career advice from our friends and family. And that's a great place to go to bounce ideas off of people. But like financial planning, I don't want my brother-in-law giving me my financial advice where I invest my entire portfolio. I want to go to a professional because it really matters that that actually does grow the way I want my portfolio to grow. And your career actually does matter too. Yeah, that makes complete sense. No, and that it is important, obviously, to chance. You don't really want to be chancing at this stage. You want to be efficient with this and you don't want to be investing time and money into something that may not go as planned. So why would you not hire a professional in such an important decision? So thanks for for adding that. Another quick question, because I believe we're starting to get short on time here, is age. How do employers or do employers look at someone in their 40s and 50s compared to someone in their early 20s? And I guess that career would, depending on the career, may be a bit different or do employers even care at this stage since you now have people working much later in life, so maybe it's completely irrelevant? So ageism in the workplace is real. I'll say that for everyone that's listening. It is something that is real. It is something that our institutions and organizations have not yet caught up to the reality that our citizens, that our population and our workers are living through. So boomers started turning 65 in 2009. That was more than 10 years ago. So we are now well into the period of time when we know we are not going to simply fall off the face of the earth at age 65. And the reason why that is so true is because the retirement age was set at 65 in the 1930s. And life expectancy in that time was only, was only 62. So the retirement age was set to be three years past life expectancy. In one generation, we've now moved to having a life expectancy that is roughly 83, which means that we are almost 20 years past the retirement age. We are no longer lockstep where retirement age and life expectancy are neck and neck with each other. And that gap is why people are feeling this need to make changes later in their careers and feeling like it's too late because all of the structures, how we train people inside of organizations, how we reward them, how we recognize them, who is too old or too young to apply for certain jobs, the relationship that we have with age inside of our organizations is really out of date. So the reason that I wrote the book, The Talent Revolution, Longevity, and the Future of Work with my amazing co-author, Fern Lebo, was because what I was starting to see was a lot of resources that were focused on individuals in their 50s and 60s who wanted to become later life entrepreneurs, shift their careers, make different changes, lots of focus 
empowering people to reinvent retirement and get them all excited about what comes next. That's the labor supply side of the equation. But the employers weren't changing their mindset. They weren't recognizing that actually the period of time from 50 to 70 or 50 to 72 or 75 is the longest segment in someone's career, the most stable segment of their career. And they should be looking for those people to be hiring. That labor demand side, the people that are looking to hire people, hadn't caught up to our own longevity. So The Talent Revolution is the first book in North America that doesn't focus on the individuals making the career change, but it's a guide for managers and leaders on how to update our talent structures so that we are using the full lifespan of talent that we have at our disposal. We're not biasing ourselves just to younger workers, and we're not leaving anyone out. And it's such an important marrying because otherwise what happens is you read all these articles online about reinventing retirement and there's a ton of Facebook groups and lots of places empowering individuals to go and do amazing things later in their careers and they go and try to achieve those goals and they get the door slammed in their face every time. We call that being all dressed up with nowhere to go. So it does take a little bit of hardiness if you're in your 60s and 70s, and you're looking to make a change, it does take a little awareness to know ageism is real. You're going to experience it. You don't need to fight the power for everyone. You need to focus on yourself and what you need to land where you need to be and get some support so that you hit, you hit it head on and you're not taken by surprise when it happens. You were asking the question about people making changes in their late 40s and 50s. And what we found is this is coming younger and younger. So I'll even be working with someone who may be 29. So 29, they're just at the beginning of their career. And they'll say, I turned 30 next year. I took this education. I don't really love where I'm headed, but it's too late. I can't make a change. So this feeling that it's too late and that we're running out of time comes from decades and decades and decades of believing our lifespan is still something that's going to end in our early 60s. And so we have this stunted view of how long we actually have to make meaningful contribution to the world around us. Lisa, I do have one question myself. Of all the people you've seen who've made the change, who've made the effort, how many find satisfaction? Hmm. That's a great question. And I don't have, I'm a researcher, you know, Challenge Factory does, does significant research into the world of work. And so I like, I would love to be able to have a, an actual statistic for you. I don't have a statistic that says, you know, 33% of the time or 68% of the time people end up with satisfaction. But what I can share is that in study after study after study over the last 40 years, Roughly 75 to 78% of employees will say they are currently not engaged in the work that they are doing. So I'm going to flip it on its head a little bit and say, instead of saying how many find satisfaction, what I think is the epidemic is the number of people that are exactly like how we started this podcast, how people are going to work every day, just putting in the time, not satisfied, not overly engaged. And that is the epidemic, actually, that we need to be tackling. Thanks so much, Lisa. That was fantastic. And I really, really appreciate 
you coming on the show today and giving my listeners all this valuable information on such an important topic. So in regards to some of the top, sorry, resources that you had mentioned, coaches and, and ways to start going down this path, what's the best way for someone to contact you so they can start figuring out what they need to do and what resources you have available to help them? That's a great question. I appreciate it, Chris, very much. So people that are looking for career-related courses, programs, and coaches can go to the centerforcareerinnovation.com, centerforcareerinnovation.com. And if they're looking for books, articles, and more future-of-work-focused research, they can go to challengefactory.ca. Great discussion. Great discussion, Lisa and Chris. Lisa Taylor of The Challenge Factory, and of course, Chris DeRoe of Three Hats Financial. For more episodes of The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth, use the subscribe button on this page, and you can also share with the share button. I'm Patrice Sikora, and let's talk again later. Thank you for listening to The Ride, Life, Work, and Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. All comments are of a general nature and should not be relied upon as individual advice. The views and opinions expressed in this commentary may not necessarily reflect those of IPC Investment Corporation. While every attempt is made to ensure accuracy, facts and figures are not guaranteed. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.